At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, or Herod, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful that you would look at a cold-hearted people like us, so fickle and distracted by the things of the world and even our own flesh, so unresponsive to your word in ourselves, and yet when seen through eyes of mercy, that you would see us as a treasured possession, a dear people worth sending your son to suffer and die for. Thank you for the Savior's unflinching resolve and warm compassion to come save us, a cold-hearted people. Help us to hear his word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just how badly do you want to save? That's a question a woman named Stephanie Strafty had to ask herself back in 2015. She and her husband Thomas were on one of those once-in-a-lifetime vacations. They had gone around the world. They found themselves on the Nile River. When unfortunately, Thomas contracted a exotic disease, a type of bacteria that made him very, very sick very, very quickly. He, his health deteriorated to the point where he ended up in the hospital. And pretty quickly, they realized this was beyond their means here. So he was airlifted back to the United States where he was diagnosed with a very rare type of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. I have the name for it here. I'm going to read it because I, no way I can memorize this. Acentobacter baumani. It is bad, bad news. The doctors did all they could for him. They threw every antibiotic they could at him all at once in the hopes that might overwhelm it. But that when that treatment failed, his health declined even more. And the doctors told his wife, you need to be ready for the fact that he isn't likely to make it. So Stephanie found herself at the lowest moment holding her husband's hands as he's sedated and intubated, asking him through tears, honey, do you even want to try to live? She says she waited for 30 agonizing seconds until she felt the weakest possible squeeze of her hand. But that squeeze set off a mission that is a borderline miracle. See, Stephanie happened to be a disease researcher with all sorts of tools and resources you and I wouldn't have access to. And the desire of her husband to live gave her an unshakable resolve and a heart full of compassion to save him. 
So she started working nights and days, researching, calling, cashing in every chip she had with anyone where she had any outstanding balance. In her study, she quickly found there was a experimental field of research, something called bacteriophages. Basically, the idea is bacteria, like you, can catch viruses, and the right virus catches, goes into the right bacteria, and it can even kill an antibiotic-resistant uh, 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 antibiotic strain like this one. The only problem is no one knew what type of virus would solve this particular type of bacteria, and no one had ever tried it in a human being before. But that didn't stop her. She made call after call. She convinced people to rummage through old vials of swamp water and the residue from bilge boats in order to find these tiny little viruses in the hope that one might be able to save her husband. And three weeks after this odyssey started, the miraculous happened. They found one that in the test tube worked and through some compassionate use authorization, it's very unusual, her husband was able to receive an experimental treatment that no one had ever received before. Within a few days, he made a full recovery. They've been healthy and married for going on eight years now. now that's an incredible story, isn't it? There's actually a book written about it. If you want to read about it yourself, look it up. But as much as we are in awe of this woman with unflinching resolve and compassion to save her husband, this morning we're going to see that that doesn't hold a candle to the resolve and compassion in the heart of our Lord Jesus. Uh, there's no obstacle too great, no pain too intense, no burden too heavy for him to carry because his heart is filled with the very love of God in heaven to save sinners, even cold-hearted sinners, from their sins. That's what we'll see this morning in two sections. First, 31 through 33, what I'm calling feigned concern and unflinching resolve. Feigned concern and unflinching resolve, 31 through 33. And second, warm compassion and a cold response. Warm compassion and a cold response. That's in 34 through 35. And in all of this, the main idea that you will take home with you that I hope you will be convinced of is that Jesus has unflinching resolve and warm compassion for a cold-hearted people. Jesus has unflinching resolve and warm compassion for a cold-hearted people. Let's begin that first section. Feigned concern, unflinching resolve. Uh, we pick up, there, Jesus and his disciples are still on that road of discipleship. He has set his face toward Jerusalem, the place where his mission must be accomplished, the place where he must suffer and die. And along the way, he's been teaching his disciples and the gathered crowds a variety of lessons by way of random encounters along the way, these little pit stops. Now, one of the themes in these encounters has been the rising opposition to Jesus coming from the religious leaders of the day, uh, the people who had all the credibility, people that, the people, uh, uh, that all the people looked up to. 
as the shepherds of the flock, the ones who would be responsible to care and feed for the weakest among them. Well, Jesus has had a series of run-ins with the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, just earlier in this chapter, he called them a bunch of hypocrites in the middle of church on a Sabbath morning in the synagogue. We've seen increased hostility and even outright plotting to try and take down Jesus. Our passage fits firmly into that theme that's one day going to metastasize into that plot to murder him in Jerusalem. Let's pick up the action, verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So there's some people that come up to Jesus, they're Pharisees, and they say, Jesus, if you know what's good for you, you're going to take the hint and get out of town. Uh, Jesus, uh, big bad Herod has it out for you. He's put a hit on you. So if you know what's good for you, now is the time to make yourself scarce. It's just from one concerned citizen to the, another, a friendly warning. Now, if you know anything about the person they are bringing the message from, Herod Antipas, you would think that this has the possibility of being a true report. Herod is not the sort of guy that anyone should want to cross. You make Herod mad, you might end up with your head served on a silver platter, like what happened to John the Baptist. Herod, after all, was a political survivor during a very bloody time with the Romans, which meant he was ruthless, and he had a reputation for being the sort of guy that when he has a problem, he finds a way to eliminate it. So it really wouldn't be any shock if Herod had, in fact, put out a hit on Jesus. I mean, after all, Jesus is stirring up all sorts of trouble, and Herod, being the ruler over this area, wanted things to be tranquil, and placid. So it, it's plausible that this is a true threat coming from Herod through the Pharisees. But then again, think about Jesus and his relationship with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were no friends of Jesus. They did not care a bit for the reality that the people of Israel were sheep without a shepherd. In fact, they felt threatened by Jesus which meant they were doing everything they could to keep the weakest from finding their way under his protective provision and care in his ministry. So I think the best way to understand this is that some people that really don't like Jesus come with some very thinly veiled threats in a feigned show of concern. Uh, Jesus probably understands that there's an ulterior motive here. Keep him away from Jerusalem. Keep him away from the center of where all the religious stuff happens. He could cause a lot less problems out in the countryside than he could if he were at the Temple Mount itself. Maybe they had some sort of trap they're trying to lead him into, but whatever's happening, these are not people that are looking out for Jesus's good. Now, if you know anything about Jesus, then it's not hard to predict how he's going to respond because Jesus is not the sort of guy that you can intimidate or threaten into deviating from his God-given mission. And that's exactly what we see in verse 32. 
Jesus responds, and he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Uh, Jesus gives them a message to take back to their big bad boss, Herod. Tell him, tell that fox, right from the beginning, an insult from Jesus. Now, a fox is not a way of complimenting the handsome good looks of Herod, okay? Uh, the fox back then had a connotation of uh, troublemaking and destruction. Uh, trying to think of a modern analogy, it'd be a bit like calling someone a weasel. You know, they're not particularly fearsome, but you want to keep your eye on it because you don't know what it's going to be up to. Well, Herod's like that. Jesus says, go ahead and tell that weasel this. And then Jesus summarizes his heavenly agenda. He says that he is, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. It's easy enough to understand what he means by those, that first two days. He has been doing miracles, casting out demons, and preaching the message of the kingdom of God for quite some time now, several years. And even he's going to keep doing that for some amount of time. He, uh, his time of preaching and doing miracles is not yet up. Now, it's a little more puzzling to ask what that third day he is that he's referring to. If you know your Bible well, you'll know often the third day is an allusion to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So it could be referring to his ministry now and then his resurrection from the dead and his victory after his crucifixion. I think the better way to understand it, though, is just a, uh, a very colloquial way, the way people would have talked back then, of describing a succession of events. That is... Jesus has been doing this ministry in the past. He's still doing it right now. But there is a moment coming, not too distant in the future, where a very different sort of thing is going to happen. Where the time for preaching and the power of his miracles will be over. And instead, he will finish his course and end his earthly life. So Jesus, in a sense, in essence, sends back to Herod the message, you don't have the ability to get me off of my heavenly agenda. I'm a man on a mission from my heavenly father, and no one's going to intimidate me or threaten me into deviating. Now that's all the more remarkable when you realize what will happen at the end of his mission, when he gets to his destination of Jerusalem. Look with me in that next verse, verse 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He re re repeats the same refrain of the three days, three successive stages to his mission, and then he tells us what has to happen. He must go to this place to perish. He must journey to Jerusalem in order to be crushed. This is what he's been telling his disciples for some time now. And now even more clearly, Jesus is teaching that his mission is to go and to die. Now notice Jesus knows that this is coming. This is not going to be any shock to him. 
And in fact, he connects it to the larger rejection and persecution that has happened to God's prophets down through the ages. He says it's only fitting that a prophet of God should perish in Jerusalem in this way. If you go back through your Old Testament, you'll find many men that were sent from God with a a message to his people that were not given a warm response. They were persecuted and rejected and sometimes even killed. Some of them had that happen in Jerusalem itself. Think of the way that Jeremiah was mistreated or the way Zechariah was stoned in that very city. Even more, though, Jerusalem is a shorthand way of describing the entire nation, which means any of the prophets that were rejected and killed, any of them, you could say Jesus is the true descendant and final fulfillment of their suffering. In all of this, we see that Jesus is not flinching even an inch as he moves toward what he know, towards what he knows is coming. As he journeys toward the place where he must suffer and die on the cross of Calvary, he will not be intimidated. He will not be threatened into deviating. He has a mission from his heavenly father and he will accomplish it. Now, what are we to take from this first portrait of Jesus? unflinching in his resolve as he accomplishes his father's will. I think the first and most direct one is for us to realize that he was so unflinching for the sake of saving you. Uh, Jesus didn't do this just as some project that, that God was doing for some unknown reason. He didn't do this just to save a random assortment of people. Now, he did this for you, for each and every one of us that would ever be saved, for the joy that was set before him of seeing us saved from our sins and united to God. He, he willingly endured the agonies of Gethsemane. He willingly allowed his life to be extinguished on the cross of Calvary, and he did it knowing exactly what was coming. My dear brothers and sisters, what sort of love is that that could motivate someone into such unflinching resolve? Uh, Maybe this week you've not felt as loved and welcomed as you'd like to be. Maybe family members that should bring you close have kept you at arm's distance. Uh, Maybe co-workers have a click and you're not allowed in. Uh, Maybe you have some neighbor that you've been trying to be friendly with that keeps giving you the cold shoulder. Or maybe for one reason or the other, you feel isolated or alone or forgotten. Would you remember what this unflinching determination of Jesus means for you? You are loved. You are wanted. You are welcome. There was no pain that was too great, no obstacle that was too high No burden that was too heavy to keep him from doing what needed to be done to be able to save your soul. Would you let him comfort you with that truth this morning? I think there's a second application to us, secondary but still true. Uh, As disciples of Jesus, we have the responsibility to follow him down that narrow path 
of discipleship through the narrow, difficult door. That means emulating virtues of our Savior, even in the lives that God has called us to, putting our Heavenly Father's agenda ahead of even the agendas of the world around us. And that means we too are called to be unflinching in our resolve when we are threatened and intimidated and the world puts pressure on us to get us to go away, God would not have us go. Um, we are living in a moment where Christians are under increasing pressure because of the cultural acceptance and embrace of the LGBTQ plus movement. Uh, we're in the middle of what is commonly called Pride Month, where corporations and uh, institutions affirm and applaud this movement. And we're living in a moment where if you do not do those things, affirm and applaud, you will come under increasing pressure until you do. Now this puts Christians in a hard spot. Because if you believe what the Bible teaches, that very clearly teaches that God created us, male and female, in the image of God, that God created the institution of marriage to be between one man and one woman, to be united in one flesh. If you believe those things that the church has believed for 2,000 years, immediately you are bearing the brunt of the pressure of the culture to try and get you to come in line. Uh, you may find yourself on the outside of a social circle if you will not affirm and applaud. You may find yourself in a strained relationship with a family member if you don't do those things. You may even find yourself losing a job if you don't get on board with this social moment. But if we're going to follow Jesus down the road of discipleship, we have to be unflinching in our resolve. No matter the price, no matter how much pressure is applied, no matter how much it hurts, we must fear God more than man. And that means we must be ready to suffer, even to be slandered, as our Savior did before us. Now, there's more to be said about that topic, but we can't get to it until we've seen the second portrait of Jesus this morning. So let's move on to the second thing that we see about Jesus in verses 34 through 35. Not just his unflinching resolve, but his warm compassion which receives a cold response in verses 34 through 35. Uh, Jesus is recorded as having a, what is the Bible calls a lament. Uh, verse 34 and 35 follow the form of this well-known form of prayer. It is a prayer of pain crying out to God in the midst of anguish. Jesus experiences intense emotions. His heart is troubled. He undoubtedly had a tear in his eye as he said these words. Because his heart is filled with warm compassion for a people that are positively frigid toward him. Verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone the, stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, 
and you were not willing. His refrain, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, is emphatic in his pain. Jerusalem, that blessed city, that place where David made his throne, that place where the temple was built to worship God, that place that is the promise of where God's blessing will be found for the nations to come and see the glory of God. Uh, Jerusalem, though, is the, the center of worship, and it is the center of the rejection that Jesus will receive. Jesus longs to gather the weakest among the people of Jerusalem. He longs to provide for them and protect them like a mother hen does with her hatchlings. Uh, My family's been reading a book in the evenings. It's called The Trumpet of the Swan. And it uh, recalls uh, these these swans that have nested and they uh, laid some eggs. And the mother swan just delights to sit on the eggs. And at one point, the husband comes over and he says, doesn't it trouble you to sit there on top of the eggs night and day with no food and no rest, and no water? Doesn't that burden you at all? And she said, no, not at all. I delight to do it. And then the eggs hatch, and she's got her little brood following her around. And her delight only expands as they go and they explore around the lake and the nest. But she wants, has this instinct to gather them close under her feathers, under her wings, away from the prying eyes of the fox and the other predators. That's a biblical image. Uh, Through your Bible, you'll find many examples of God describing his provision and protection for God's people like a mother bird caring for her young. Uh, One such example, Psalm 17, verses 8 through 9, keep me as the apple of your eye, Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. What is the heart of Jesus like? What does he long to do to the people of Jerusalem? He longs to show them and shower them with his compassion, to draw them close, to allow his warm heart to thaw their frigid hearts to protect and provide and to care to make sure that nothing could ever destroy them or threaten them to keep them from the world and the enemy and yes even their own flesh that's the heart of Jesus for sinners of all types but that's not the way the story goes is it because Jesus' warm heart of compassion is met with a cold shoulder of rejection. He describes it. He says, and you were not willing. Now notice, Jesus wants to gather the children of Jerusalem, and yet another group, that's the Pharisees he's speaking to, are not willing. Now this is fully fitting with the way that the Pharisees and the leaders have responded to Jesus thus far. They have consistently been rejecting him and doing all they can to keep people from coming to him. And here he describes the fact that as much as he desires to gather the people, that the leaders will not allow it to happen. And yet as the rest of Luke's gospel goes on, it's not just the leaders 
that are cold-hearted to Jesus. It's even the weakest among them. It's the people, the crowds. Uh, One day, the nobodies in Jerusalem will be gathered with their leaders, shouting out, crucify him, crucify him, because they would not receive his protection and his provision, and they would not follow him down the road of discipleship. All this results in judgment, a somber note of judgment that ends the passage. Verse 35, behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, with sorrow in his heart, looks forward to what is surely coming now that the rejection of him by the people of God is full. Their house is forsaken. The special protection that God had given to Israel down through the ages was being removed. And in fact, a day was coming not too far in the future when even that blessed city that Jesus longed for so much would be wiped out by the Romans. It happened in AD 70. The Romans came and crushed a rebellion of the Jews. They tore down the walls. They burned the temple with fire. And yes, they slaughtered the people inside the city. Jesus sees what's coming and his heart grieves this judgment that now will come to pass. The cold-hearted people will feel the sting of God's judgment. And yet there is a note of hope even woven into that. He tells them they won't see him again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now there's some uh, ambiguity as to what exactly Jesus means by this. Clearly he's saying that at some point in the future they will see him, though for a time they won't. Some think that it is referring to the triumphal entry when Jesus enters Jerusalem and the crowds shout out that same line which comes from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I don't think that's the case because it seems like this is supposed to happen after the judgment occurs, which means I think it's best to understand this not about his first coming, but his second coming. Jesus looks forward to a time, Romans 11 talks about it as well, and even though the nation of Israel has rejected him so consistently, yet there will still be an ingathering of those that are descended of the people of God, the Israelites, who together with the Gentiles will welcome the second coming of our Lord Jesus and declare in celebration, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Jesus will get his opportunity to gather that cold-hearted people of God made up of Jews and Gentiles in a moment of celebration yet to come. So even this passage of judgment ends in hope. All right, what are we to do with this portrait of Jesus with warm-hearted compassion, rejected by a cold-hearted people. Well, I think the first and most primary application is if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you may be feeling some sense of shame 
for things you've done. You may imagine that God would have nothing to do with you. That if you were to meet Jesus, that he would say, sorry, not, you're not the sort of person I hang around. But that's not the way the Jesus of the Bible presents himself. Uh, sure, he is not someone that excuses sin. He, in fact, is more serious about it than anybody. So serious that he'd be willing to die to deal with it. And yet he has a heart full of compassion for sinners of all types. Uh, friend, I don't know the specifics of what your life has been like, or what you've done, or what's been done to you, but I do know this. You can draw under the shadow of the wings of Jesus. No matter what sort of sins your soul has been marked by, you can be forgiven and cared for and loved. And you can have eternal life with God if you'll repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus. That's because Jesus was willing to give up his life as a sacrifice, a substitute for sinners of all types. That's what him dying on the cross of Calvary was all about. And he accomplished that mission completely. So friend, if you come to Jesus, there will not be a sin or accusation that will stick to your soul. There won't be a single person or devil in hell that can keep you away from a loving relationship with God. He stands with arms open wide, ready to welcome you, full of compassion. But friend, you must be willing. You must respond in repentance and faith. Do that today. Come under the shadow of his wings. I think there's also an application, returning to what we talked about before, related to how do we respond to the cultural moment we're in with the sexual revolution. See, yes, it's very important for us to know that we cannot affirm and applaud. We must be unflinching when it comes to anything that God's word says is evil. We have no right to call that good. And yet, if all we do is be unflinching, then we will be like a stone. Immovable, yes, but cold and hard. But friends, that's not what Jesus is like. Uh, Jesus matches his unflinching resolve with warm compassion toward even sinners that will reject him and kill him. So we too must have warm compassion no matter what we do in response to the cultural moment we're living in. So no matter what you post or what you say or what you decide on conviction you must do or must not do, make sure whatever you do, it is not done out of hate or bitterness. We lie to the world if we show them a cold, unflinching Jesus instead of the Jesus that is both unflinching and full of compassion for sinners. May the Lord give us wisdom as we decide how to apply that in our own lives this week and the days ahead. Finally, I think most directly to all of us here this morning that are believers, we need to allow our souls to be amazed by the depths of compassion that Jesus has for a cold-hearted people, namely us, the people of God. Those of us who have believed and repented of our sins, we have a picture of what his compassion was like that came to us and saved us 
even though we've done nothing to deserve it. Sometimes it's tempting to imagine that the reason that we become Christians is because you know, we had the inside track. Uh, we were more insightful. We were more spiritually mature. We had eyes to see. That's why we responded to the gospel and someone else didn't. I love the way Pastor Lincoln Duncan put it this week in a sermon I read. He said, we need to understand this, that Jesus wants to save more than we want to be saved. Catch that? Jesus wants to save more than we want to be saved. Brothers and sisters, that's such good news. Because I don't know about you, but my heart is fickle at best. There are days where it feels like it's on fire for the Lord, and it's easy to be unflinching and full of joy. And there are times where my love feels like it runs cold. I'm barely hanging on. But the compassion of Jesus doesn't wax or wane based on our obedience or even the temperature of our hearts. Jesus wants to save more than any of us wants to be saved. Thanks be to God, because if it wasn't for that, not a single one of us would be saved. Jesus knows that we need to be reminded of this that he was unflinching in his resolve to save us with a heart full of compassion for us, a cold-hearted people. He knows that week after week we forget, and week after week we get discouraged, which is why he has instructed us again and again to be reminded of what he did to draw us into the shadow of his wings. Namely, he's given us symbols so that we would be, our, our minds would have a picture of it in the Lord's table itself. Would you prepare your heart with me as, in prayer as we uh, approach the Lord's table? Jesus, we acknowledge that we are not the people that we ought to be. We are not as unflinching in our resolve as is required for the moment we live in. We feel tempted out of fear of man to affirm and applaud. There are even times where our strength fails us and we stumble and we give license to things that your word has said are simply sinful. Jesus, we also acknowledge that our hearts often are too cold when it comes to showing compassion to others. Even this week, we have not been as loving and considerate as we should have been. We have not yearned for people to be saved. We have not made every effort to do what we can so they might be saved. We've allowed feelings of bitterness and even judgment to set in instead. Jesus, thank you for your compassion to us and the way these symbols in the Lord's table remind us that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That no matter how badly we stumble or how frigid our hearts feel, that you're ready to bring us close and allow your 
heavenly love to thaw our frozen hearts. Uh, Jesus, as we consider what you did on the cross of your body that was broken and your blood that was shed, would you fill our hearts with joy and, and even grace toward each other? Would you help us to strive together for the bond of peace in the Holy Spirit? Would you keep us from biting at one, each, uh, one another and infighting and lack of forgiveness? Uh, Jesus, would we be able to display, even in our relationships toward each other, your warm heart of compassion? And Jesus, as we take this together, we pray that you would remind us again that you indeed love us, that you've longed to gather us to yourself, and that you delight to provide and protect our very souls. So Jesus, help us now to remember your love and your sacrifice for cold-hearted sinners like us. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.